This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The big picture behind this lecture can be, be summed up in, in a title um, of, of a book by Michael Allen Gillespie, The Theological Origins of Modernity. Now, as to say, Western modernity emerges from within a very, very long uh, theological history. And whether we realize it or not, our entire present horizon of intellectual problems and quandaries stems from theological decisions and developments originating at least back as far back as the, the 13th and 14th centuries. Specifically, so both uh, Gillespie and this uh, second um, useful study by Thomas Fow argue the seismic shift that will begin to generate modernity is the combination of nominalism, meaning the rejection of uh, the reality of natures, essences, universals, and voluntarism, the idea that the will is prior to and determines the intellect in both God and human beings. Uh, William of Ockham is the most uh, influential representative of uh, what we will find to be a rather corrosive combination, and we'll hear more about him in uh, a moment. I'll mostly be drawing on Gillespie and Fow in my account here, so those of you who want to, to know more about the background can, can go to those sources first and, and you'll find a, a glut of further reading in the bibliographies. What I want to uh, show in this lecture is how modernist literature from the 20th century is still profoundly in the grip of the problems originally generated by nominalism. Indeed, modernism is arguably the point in literary history where these problems come to a head, where they begin to be confronted as a challenge to artistic language as such, um, issuing in radical formal experiments that push at the limits of sense-making and sign-making. And the three modernist texts I will be focusing on today are Samuel Beckett's weird and wonderful novel, What? Um, Wallace Stevens's long discursive poem, Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction, and David Jones's long epic poem, The Anathemata. Um, I'm, I'm not going to assume familiarity with any of these, uh, so um, I'll, uh, there'll be enough, I think, uh, context and quotations for you to, to follow, I hope. We'll look at Beckett's case first, um, both because his nominalist influences are quite explicit and traceable, and because he deals directly with the sense of chaos, breakdown, and failure that uh, an extreme nominalism occasions. Beckett thus pinpoints a sense of threat that's there in other modernist writers too. But whereas Beckett's approach is in a sense to stick doggedly with weakness and ignorance and failure and not get away from it, um, other writers seek more a, a kind of form of solution or escape. For instance, Stevens um, seeks a kind of solipsistic power of imaginative creation and uncreation, naming and unnaming of reality that at certain epiphanic moments seems to mimic the absolute will of the nominalist God. Uh, whereas Jones, the third figure, is here in this lecture as a kind of counter example, uh, a writer who is opposed, in a way, to the whole nominalist tra traje trajectory pardon me, of modernity and who draws from that opposition a compelling theory of the inherently sacramentalist uh, sign-making and art-making nature of human beings that he tests in his poetry. So that's the, uh, the, the overview of of, of the lecture, four parts, uh, and starting with part one. As I said before, a key characteristic of uh, the kind of medieval nominalism represented by William Ockham and his followers is the denial of the reality of universals or essences or natures as inherent in individual things themselves. Our perceptions of the similarities between things are then just that, our mental perceptions, which we can organize into abstractions and label with names or signs, and which we may agree amongst ourselves make more or less sense. Uh, thus, for, um, for Ockham uh, on Gillespie's uh, account, in the absence of real universals, names become mere signs or signs of signs. Language thus does not reveal being, but in practice often conceals the truth about being by fostering a belief in universals. In fact, all so-called universals are merely second or higher order signs that we as finite beings used to aggregate individual beings into categories. These categories, however, do not denote real things. They are only useful fictions that help us make sense out of the radically individualized world. As uh, Fowl points out, the consequences are far reaching once, quote, the singular entity is no longer related to an Aristotelian notion of form, but to a process of 
abstraction. It thus constitutes a derivative concept rather than a real existent. Nature has become something alien, not something in which we always already participate, as with uh, Thomas Aquinas, but an enigmatic other to be acquired and remade by the kind of con human conceptual labor that Barockum and his nominalist successors defines all rational activity. Now, it's crucial also to grasp that uh, the underlying motivation for Occam's rejection of real natures and universals is his theological voluntarism. Really existing natures and universals was felt by Occam to limit God's absolute power by obliging him to make use of these natures in his act of creation. On the contrary, says Occam, God's will cannot be constrained in this way. He is free to do anything that is not actually contradictory. To get rid of universals theologically, Occam therefore argues that each being is radically individual, directly and contingently uh, created and sustained in being by God himself without any kind of mediation by created essences. God is furthermore not bound by anything he has previously done, any laws he may have ordained. God is no man's debtor, as Occam often put it. There is thus no unchanging order of nature that human beings may securely grasp through reason, and there is no eschatological plan for the cosmos that God is actually bound to uphold. In some, this generates a potentially simply frightening picture of the nominalist God. God uh, was under no obligation to keep his promises or to act consistently. For nominalism, God is, to use a technical term, indifferent. That is, he recognizes no natural or rational standards of good and evil that guide or constrain his will. What is good is not good in itself, but simply because he wills it. So let's, let's pause for a moment to kind of bring out the extremity of that position. This means that God could theoretically decree even that we should not love him. And if he did, and if he did decree this, it would suddenly be good for us not to love him. So Gillespie continues, uh, as this short sketch makes clear, the God that nominalism revealed was no longer the beneficent and reasonably predictable God of scholasticism. The gap between man and God has been greatly increased. God could no longer be understood or influenced by human beings. He acted simply out of freedom and was indifferent to the consequences of his acts. He laid down rules for human conduct, but he might change them at any moment. Some were saved and some were damned, but there was only an accidental relation between salvation and saintliness and damnation and sin. It is not even clear that this God loves man. The world this God created was thus a radical chaos of utterly diverse things in which humans could find no point of certainty or security. How could anyone love or venerate such an unsettling God? And the philosopher um, Edward Faser, in an incisive blog post on Occam, has neatly summed up the, the long-term trajectory towards modernity that uh, Gillespie's book goes on to discuss. Um, this is... Um, Faisal summarizing Gillespie, the Renaissance humanist's revolution in culture, Luther's revolution in theology, Descartes' revolution in philosophy, and Hobbes's revolution in politics also have their roots in Occamism. With the humanists, this was manifested in their emphasis on man as an individual willing being rather than as a rational animal. In Luther's case, the prospect of judgment by the terrifying god of nominalism and voluntarism an omnipotent and capricious will, ungoverned by any rational principle, was cause for despair. Since reason is incapable of fathoming this God and good works incapable of appeasing him, faith alone could be Luther's refuge. With Descartes, the God of nominalism and voluntarism opened the door to a radical doubt in which even the propositions of mathematics, the truth of which was in Descartes' view subject to God's will no less than the contingent truths of experience, were in principle uncertain. And we see the moral and political implications of nominalism in the amoral, self-interested individuals of Hobbes's so-called state of nature and in the fearsome absolute monarch, monarch of his Leviathan, whose relationship to his subjects parallels that of the nominalist God to the universe. To fully grasp the monumental significance of Occam's innovations, though, we should look forward, not only, not only look forward to modernity, but also backwards to the theological synthesis he is assaulting, which in a Thomistic Institute's talk at Blackfriars Oxford is, of course, best represented by Thomas Aquinas. Um, Fowles' study does an excellent job of bringing out the contrast here, and I'll now draw on his, his chapter six. And this is, this is uh, I, I assume, st stuff that you will be already very familiar with, so I'll just be, be brief here. For Aquinas, the intellect has priority over the will in both God and human beings. God creates out of his own perfect goodness, since he is very being by his essence, created being 
must be his proper effect. The forms or essences or substances created are an inherent outcome of his perfect intellect and follow from it. The idea of his suddenly changing his mind about their value or deciding to redo creation with a different set of forms is for Aquinas a contradiction in terms. God continuously and lovingly affirms all of creation and has a plan for it which is neither changeable nor exchangeable. The ultimate ultimus finis, the ultimate end of creation and of individual creatures within it, is in fact written into the natures or essences that God uses to create with. In human beings, the will is conceived as a rational appetite, and its choice is therefore necessarily guided by that which the intellect proposes. Free will in human beings is therefore not conceived in the nominalist voluntarist way as sheer power to choose between opposing alternatives. Instead, for Aquinas, the will is guided by the ultimate end of happiness, an end which is not itself chosen as an object by the will, but rather is a, a gift of God's grace, as ultimate happiness consists in sharing his life. The will always chooses sub ratio neboni under the aspect of the good, so that its choice, again, is guided by the intellect's representation of something as good. Of course, the intellect can suffer various kinds of confusions, whereby lower goods are mistaken for higher ones, it can take time for the intellect to fully comprehend and the will to fully assent to the ultimate good and to order other choices accordingly. The ultimate end is nonetheless always present in this process, written into our human nature, there to be discovered. Free will for Aquinas, therefore, is the freedom to choose the ultimate end. Freedom means the absence of constraints on that choice so that it may be fully embraced. So as you can see, this, this is a picture that's radically different from the one Occam presents us with. The long-term repercussions of this theological dividing line will continue to reverberate as we move into our analysis of modernist literature. First on the list, Beckett. And in moving on to discuss Samuel Beckett, I want to start from one of the major influences on his thinking. The German philosopher, philosopher of language, uh, Fritz Mautner, whose ideas also happen to show very clearly the direct linkage between medieval nominalism and its modernist transmutation and intensification. Um, so all the quotations uh, from Mautner are from Beckett's own excerpted notes um, uh, taken in about 1938 uh, on Mautner's two volumes, uh, Beiträge zu einer Kritik der Sprache, or Contributions to a Critique of Language. Mautner's fundamental question is whether a language is more or less suited to allow its speaker to recognize the world. And his answer is a resounding no. <laughs> Thoughts are reducible to words for Mautner, and there is a complete disconnect between words and reality, a position Mautner refers to as logically consistent nominalism. And this is the teaching that all concepts or words of human thought are only exhalations of the human voice logically consistent nominalism, according to which the recognition of reality is just as much denied to the human brain as the makeup of a surface of stone. This pure nominalism, which despite all of the natural sciences, still as easily despairs of understanding a fall or color or electricity as an understanding of consciousness, this epistemological nominalism is not a provable worldview. It would not be nominalism if it pretended to be more than a feeling, than a disposition of the human individual facing the world. And in this frame of mind, we are denied even, even a thinking through to a conclusion of, even a satisfactory submersion of oneself into this teaching, because all thinking takes place in the words of the language, and thinking dissolves into itself when the nebulous nature of words has become clear to us. Well, that can become clear is another matter. Um, so Mautner sketches out the whole history of philosophy as what he calls the slow self-dissolution of the metaphorical. And the, the ur-culprit here is Plato, whose ideas or forms are mere empty metaphors. Plato, says Mautner, was responsible for raising the overestimation of metaphorical language to a high point, which it has occupied for more than a millennium, yes, indeed, to the present. While he had learned from a, pre from a predecessor the deceptiveness of the reality picture, everything is in a state of flux, he did not thereby, as did Socrates, that's the predecessor, confessed to not knowing, but personified instead the abstractions of language, made ideas into the mothers of the world. Time is turned upside down. The last is termed the first. The concepts abstracted from individual things are called the cause of the singular thing. Aristotle, says Mountner, was able to see through the enormity of this false analogy 
uh, which after all only made that which does not exist the basis for that which exists again. This is why he stated ideas as being imminent. One expressed this in the Middle Ages in the following fashion. Um, um, uh, he replaced the universals ante rem with universals in re. It was a destruction of the ideas metaphor. But with a much more dangerous, less easy to comprehend anthropomorphism, he now made, made on his part the necessity concept, the causal factor for the world, for the soul, for the form principle of matter. To these ideas, Christendom brought, along with the epigone school, schools of Greek philosophy which preceded it, the religious concept of God, and for centuries the scholastics wore their teeth out in chewing through the chain of these entwined metaphors. The nominalism of the Middle Ages is the first attempt at a genuine self-destruction of metaphorical thinking. So I apologize for this very long quotation, but this kind of potted history of the inadequacy of our merely human metaphors in face of reality recurs so often and in so many versions um, in modernist uh, thinkers and writers that it's, it's worth the foregrounding in here. You'll find it you know, all over Nietzsche, for instance. Um, we will recognize several common features here when we get to Wallace Stevens's contrast between imagination and reality later on in this, in this talk. Stevens too starts from Plato in much the same way for one thing. Um, but it's, it's worth stopping to notice that while these secularizing histories assume a kind of inevitable and progressive destruction of religious ideas, in fact, such histories are themselves rooted in and made possible by older theological decisions for nominalism and voluntarism and against universals and Thomist intellectualism. Uh, but for now, let's hear Mautner's conclusion, which is relentlessly negative. Whatever the human may dare to do through superhuman strength in order to discover truth, he always finds only himself, a human truth, an anthropomorphic picture of the world. The last word of thought can only be the negative act, the self-destruction of anthropomorphism, the insight into the profound wisdom of Vico. Not everything is intelligible to men. So turning now to, directly to, to Samuel Beckett, in a famous letter to his friend Axel Kahn from 1937, Beckett described his own artistic project as driven by a nominalist irony, an attempt to, quote, invent, invent a method by means of which this mocking attitude to words may be put into words in a literature of the unword. The medium of language itself becomes a veil that must be torn apart in order to get at the things or the nothingness behind it. Beckett's reading of Mautner, probably around 1937-38, fully confirmed these intuitions. And in the novel, what started in 1940, nominalist irony suffuses every page. For those of you unfamiliar with the novel, I'll just say that uh, it's, the, the concept is extremely simple. Watt arrives at the establishment of a certain Mr. Knott and spends a certain time there as a, as a servant before moving on again. And the puns on the names are, of course, very much intended. What is a questioner and a seeker, whereas Mr. Knott, K-N-O-T-T, -T, is both an enigma and a nothingness, as well as a kind of absent deity figure. And the book is about the immense frustrations of Watt as he tries to apply language to the realities encountered in Mr. Knott's establishment. For Watt now found himself in the midst of things which, if they consented to be named, did so, as it were, with reluctance. Looking at a pot, for example, or thinking of a pot, at one of Mr. Knott's pots, of one of Mr. Knott's pots, it was in vain that Watt said, pot, pot. Well, perhaps not quite in vain, but very nearly, for it was not a pot. The more he looked, the more he reflected, the more he felt sure of that, that it was not a pot at all. It resembled a pot. It was almost a pot, but it was not a pot of which one could say, pot, pot, and be comforted. It was in vain that it answered with unexceptional adequacy all the purposes and performed all the offices of a pot. It was not a pot. And it was just this hairbreadth departure from the nature of a true pot, that so excruciated what? <laughs> and the essence of the pot, capital P, the true nature or form or idea of the pot has become inaccessible to the human intellect. And what finds himself in a chaos of never fully nameable particulars, experiencing firsthand the creeping, threatening realization that as Mountain put it, all thinking takes place in the words of the language. And 
thinking dissolves into itself when the nebulous nature of words has become clear to us. And following his, his tangle with the pot, um, what made the distressing discovery that of himself too, he could no longer affirm anything that did not seem as false as if he had affirmed it of a stone. You know the direct link to, to the mountainer there with the surface of the stone. Um, as for himself, though he could no longer call it a man, as he had used to do, with the intuition that he was perhaps not talking nonsense, yet he could not imagine what else to call it, if not a man. But Watt's imagination had never been a lively one. So he continued to think of himself as a man, as his mother had taught him when she said, there's a good little man, or there's a bonny little man, or there's a clever little man. But for all the relief this afforded him, he might just as well have thought of himself as a box or an urn. The habit of calling yourself a man is here just a comforting fable derived from childhood. But at the same time, there is no alternative name available that is somehow outside or beyond the particular language we have been arbitrarily taught. The reduction of a man to an it is no more satisfactory. In fact, the mention of a box or an urn hints at a, a living death here, for if man has been interred, then what kind of thing is left behind? But if man is impossible to know or define, what of God? What obsessively records and broods over each and every circumstance in Mr. Knott's establishment in order to discern some kind of legible order? And large parts of the book is taken up with his attempts to enumerate all possibilities that might hypothetically explain the arrangements surrounding trivial details such as the, such, such as the, the disposal of Mr. Knott's after-dinner slops. And this is hilarious, if exasperating reading, but the underlying idea is first that a nominalist God does not communicate his essence to his creation, nor may, be, nor may he be known through the enumeration of accidents. And second, that no order inherent in creation can ultimately be observed, for a voluntarist God is absolutely free to change his mind and to invent new hypothetical worlds. Uh, accordingly, little by little, what abandoned all hope, all fear of ever seeing Mr. Knott face to face, with echoes, of course, uh, both of Dante's Inferno and St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, the few glimpses caught of Mr. Knott by Watt were not clearly caught, but as it were, in a glass. However, these glimpses were so various as far as Watt could make out that Watt would never have supposed it was the same. That is, the image of Knott is constantly shifting here. Um, uh, so, so the irony is that an inf infernal lack of any certainty, the persistence of nebulous and un unclassifiable impressions, somehow trumps and undermines the eschatological desire for full and final knowledge. It is no wonder, perhaps, that Watt appears to end up in an asylum, uh, his speech subject to schizophrenic inversions of word and sentence order. In this mangled, halting speech, he recalls his mystical attempt to abandon mind, body, language, and all created things to the divine absolute otherness, which is also a nothingness, very much in the tradition of the nominalist mystic, Meister Eckhart. Of naught to the source, to the teacher, to the temple, to him I brought this emptied heart, these emptied hands, this mind ignoring, this body homeless, to love him, my little reviled, my little rejected to have him, my little to learn him, forgot, abandoned, my little to find him. But we also glimpse the more frightening side of the nominalist voluntarist God whom Watt is so fervently seeking. At one point, meeting by a stream in the asylum gardens, Watt and the narrator, Sam, share in a grotesque imitatio dei of the arbitrary and capricious absolute power of a God whose creation, red in tooth and claw, here appears as the worst of all possible worlds. But our particular friends were the rats that dwelt by the stream. We would sit down in the midst of them and give them to eat out of our hands a nice fat frog or a baby thrush. Or seizing suddenly a plump young rat resting in our bosom after its repast, we would feed it to its mother or its father or its brother or its sister or to some less fortunate relative. It was on such occasions we agreed, after an exchange of views, that we came nearest to God. This is deliberately shocking. And here we are close to something like the driving motivation, I think, behind Beckett's entire oeuvre. It's an ethical protest against the claims of any kind of theodicy to, to justify God's ways to man in the face of creaturely suffering. Beckett agrees wholeheartedly with Schopenhauer's view that such metaphysical optimism is a really wicked way of thinking, a bitter mockery of the unspeakable sufferings of mankind. And this, I think, is why 
the nominalist god has such tremendous and recurring fascination for Beckett, precisely because his cosmic tyranny and arbitrariness can be magnified so that ethical rebellion against him seems emotionally justified. This perspective also offers a consistent artistic theme to explore, that of failure and weakness on the part of the human beings faced with existence in such a world. Um, so I want to, to emphasize that idea of, of kind of underlying driving motivation behind Beckett's artistic project here, because in my view, modernist authors confront the problems bequeathed by nominalism in remarkably similar form, but they seek very different solutions according to the bent of their underlying motivation. Um, in Wallace Stevens's notes towards supreme fiction, for example, we find passages like these, which would be utterly unthinkable in Beckett. The poem refreshes life so that we share for a moment the first idea. It satisfies belief in an immaculate beginning, an elixir, an excitation, a pure power. The poem through candor brings back a power again that gives a candid kind to everything. And again, there is an hour filled with expressible bliss in which I have no need, am happy, forget needs golden hand, am satisfied without solacing majesty, and if there is an hour, there is a day, there is a month, a year, there is a time in which majesty is a mirror of the self. I have not, but I am, and as I am, I am. I'll get back to this passage later. Um, Stephen's poetry weaves endlessly bet between the poles of imagination and reality and back again. Reality is sometimes figured as stark and bare and alien, but also as fascinating and absorbing and desirable in its very otherness. Imagination is sometimes figured as richness, abundance, magnificence, a world-creating power, but just as often it is mere imagination, illusion and vanity and unreal projections and reflections of our own desires, um, as in the very next stanza following my last quotation. These external regions, what do we fill them with except reflections, the escapades of death, Cinderella fulfilling herself beneath the roof. The task Stevens sets for his poetry is to search for conjunctions between imagination and reality that can somehow do justice to both poles. For any figuration of reality, even as stark, bare, alien, is, is, is inevitably imaginative, whereas any imaginative projection must somehow emerge in response to reality, even if reality itself can never be named. So it goes back and forth like that in, in Stevens. Poetry, poetry conceived as the search for these momentary conjunctions of expressible bliss is therefore itself what Stevens calls the supreme fiction. So poetry is the supreme fiction. That's it, the more than rational distortion, the fiction that results from feeling, yes, that. A sense of being almost there, almost able to grasp it, but the note that the poem is, is, is just notes towards the supreme fiction. It is not the supreme fiction itself. Um, underpinning this whole desire for, for poetry as a supreme fiction, though, is a nominalist story very much like that outlined by Fritz Mautner. In the opening canto of Notes, we recognize a similar history of the self-dissolution of the metaphorical, starting with Plato, whose theory of forms, according to Mautner, simply personified abstractions and made ideas into the, mother of the mothers of the world. So keep in mind as we, as we read this that um, the sun is a symbol of the ultimate idea or form of the good in Plato's Republic, the light source that enables all other perception of reality to, to take place. This is Stevens now. Begin, Phoebe, by perceiving the idea of this invention, this invented world, the inconceivable idea of the sun. You must become an ignorant man again and see the sun again with an ignorant eye and see it clearly in the idea of it. Never suppose an inventing mind as source of this idea, nor for that mind compose a voluminous master folded in his fire. How clean the sun when seen in its idea, washed in the remotest cleanliness of a heaven that has expelled us and our images. The death of one God is the death of all. Let purple Phoebus lie in umber harvest. Let Phoebus slumber and die in autumn umber. Phoebus is dead, Phoebe. But Phoebus was a name for something that never could be named. There was a project for the sun and is. There is a 
project for the sun. The sun must bear no name, gold flourisher, but be in the difficulty of what it is to be. Stephen's Phoebe, or still immature young, young man, is a figure of the reader desiring entrance into the Republic of Poetry. But this is no longer possible in the old way by freely inventing metaphors about ultimate reality, like Plato's son as figure of the good. There needs to be a new awareness of inventedness itself, um, the metaphoricity of all our images and the arbitrariness of all our naming, in light of which the sun is ultimately inconceivable. This requires a kind of discipline of ignorance, the active forgetting of past names for the sun and the shedding of its accumulated associations with the divine, whether as Phoebus Apollo or as by created by some inventing mind, some finally anthropomorphic voluminous master folded in his fire. In this stanza, to see the sun clearly in the idea of it precisely does not mean to see the sun as platonic eidos. It means to see the sun as encompassed by the clutter of our human ideas about it, and therefore also in itself as alien from these ideas, inconceivable by them. Again, how clean the sun when seen in its idea, washed in the remotest cleanliness of a heaven that has expelled us in our images. The paradox here, though, is, as the poem openly admits, that the very notion of a kind of Ding an sich style sun behind and beyond our perceptions and images um, in itself constitutes a kind of reimagination of heaven in its remotest cleanliness. And Stephen is acutely aware of, of this paradox and plays with it at several points by enacting in his poetic language the very things that the ostensive argument of the poem suggests uh, are, are impossible. For instance, the death of all the gods, their skeptical dis dismissal as, as mere fanciful myths, is followed by a, a self-consciously purple, purple Phoebus poetic passage evoking the, the seasonal slumber of Phoebus in, in autumn uh, as if he will awake again, as if the gods are in fact inevitably linked to the metaphoricity of language itself and will keep resurrecting in ever new forms because of this. And this is again reminiscent of, of, of Mautner, uh, whatever the human may dare to do through superhuman strength in order to discover truth, he always finds only himself a human truth an anthropomorphic picture of the world. But the difference is that Stevens doesn't finally go along with Mountner's relentless negativity. To recall Mountner, he concludes, the last word of thought can only be the negative act, the self-destruction of anthropomorphism. But Stevens' last stanza in, in notes is trying to make the very unnaming of the sun, the destruction of anthropomorphic images into a new project of necessity continuous with the old one, but somehow also di different. There is a project for the sun, the sun must bear no name, gold flourisher, but be in the difficulty of what it is to be. And that gold flourisher is, I think, a wonderful touch. It's very much a, an as-if naming. The new name is explicitly between scare quotes, and as such, it can only emerge from within the prior consciousness of the impossibility of assigning any final name to the, to the sun itself. Um, it's also, again, capriciously purple and poetic, imaginatively rich. So the, the poet can, can thus continue to ostentatiously invent names, as long as there is also an awareness that all names are, in a sense, merely poetic. And precisely as such, the poet becomes the truest namer of all, the one with the most acute access to the sun's being in its incon inconceivability, in the difficulty of what it is to be. So we've talked quite a lot about um, this idea of naming and unnaming in relation to Stevens and the, and the nominalist connection there is, is, is obvious enough. But what about the nominalist God? Uh, so much in evidence in, in Beckett. While it may seem that Stevens simply proceeds on the secular premise that the death of one God is the death of all, things are not quite so straightforward. For the poet as ultimate namer and unnamer of things comes in some ways to stand uneasily in the vacated place of the nominalist God the God who can make and unmake arbitrarily, capriciously, and at will. Consider, for example, Canto 8 of the third section of Notes. What am I to believe? If the angel in his cloud, serenely gazing at the violent abyss, plucks on his strings to pluck abysmal glory, leaps downward through evening's revelations, and on his spreaden wings needs nothing but deep space, forgets the gold centre, the golden destiny, grows warm in the motionless motion of his flight. Am I that imagine this angel less satisfied? Are the wings his, the lapis-haunted air? Is it he 
Or is it I that experience this? Is it I then that keep saying there is an hour filled with expressible bliss in which I have no need, am happy, forget needs golden hand, am satisfied without solacing majesty. And if there is an hour, there is a day, there is a month, a year, there is a time in which majesty is a mirror of the self. I have not, but I am, and as I am, I am. And the poet here usurps God as the real creator of angels and appropriates their magnificent flight to his own self. Their explicitly projected mirrored majesty for a moment glorifies and fully satisfies the poetic self to the point where he can echo the I am who I am spoken to, to Moses from the burning bush. But the poet's creation of the angel in language is also inherently arbitrary and can as easily be undone, just like the sheer potentia absoluta of the nominalist god can create and destroy at will. And therefore the, the following stanza about Cinderella fulfilling herself beneath the roof that we've already seen, destruct, deconstructing the imagery of the angel and the majestic self as, as yet another mere reflection, is not really all humility about the limits of mere imagination. It actually still retains something of the exhilarating but frightening power to uncreate at will, characteristic of the nominalist god. Stevens, in his solipsism then, wants to enjoy angels. He wants to also enjoy being god. But the question remains, does this finally lock the poet on the inside of his creative self and throw away the key? I want to leave Stevens there because this is a problem that's never fully resolved in his poetry, but keeps revolving, always somewhere halfway between tremendous possibility and world-dissolving anxiety. Um, I now turn instead to David Jones, whose root interpretation of the whole sign-making capability of human beings is radically different from the late nominalist predicament sketched here via Mautner, Beckett, uh, and Stevens. As his uh, biographer Thomas Dilworth has pointed out, Jones's resistance to nominalism, inspired the, by the Thomist philosopher Jacques Maritain, the sculptor Eric Gill, and his world, wider circle of Dominican friends, was in fact foundational for his intellectual development in the 1920s. Uh, this is from the, the biography. Uh, Neo-Thomist discussion ranged through the history of philosophy. With Jones joining in, they voiced antipathy to nominalism, which he had learned from the Dominicans and Gill. Um, the 14th century nominalist William of Ockham was responsible. They were all convinced for much that was wrong in Western thought and culture. Jones's main objection was to the nominalist principle of economy, known as Occam's razor, which forbade the positing of unnecessary entities. This led to Protestantism, to the dualist minimalism, minimalism of Descartes, to the skepticism of Hume, Berkeley, and the English empiricists, and finally to positivist reductionism. Why have angels? Why have saints? Why have God? The less, the better. Jones thought this abominable. They also objected to the nominalist doctrine that the created world consisted only of unrelated singularities, and that universal concepts or names, hence the term nominalism, were empty of meaning. Jones was committed in his work to expressing the, the universal through the particular as both essential to artistic truth. So here we have, in effect, a modernist writer attempting to get behind or beyond the long shadow of nominalism in Western culture. In his important essay, Art and Sacrament, uh, Jones argues that it is of the essence or nature of human beings to be sign makers, and hence artists too. I'll try to, to elucidate this in a moment, but uh, first I'd like to just, just notice the complete reversal of emphasis that this implies from the kind of anxiety about merely arbitrary naming and the in inaccessibility of ultimate reality that we have discussed before. For Jones, by contrast, the very fact of our sign-making nature proclaims our link to a creator God, because he, like us, creates gratuitously, that is, playfully and out of love, as a pure gift of his being. So that when Jones in, in Art and Sacrament concludes, man, sacrament at every turn and at all levels of the profane and sacred in the trivial and in the profound, no escape from sacrament, this idea of no escape is very far from being a, a prison house anymore, as we often feel about human sign making in both Beckett and Stevens. Jones's argument in Art and Sacrament is, is very rich and very digressive, and uh, I, I give you the barest gist of it here. Uh, and highly recommend you, you read it for yourselves. Um, uh, the two uh, realms or abilities specific to human nature, um, Jones calls prudentia and ars, following Maritain's termist, uh, terminology in his book, Art and Scholasticism. Prudentia refers to the realm of faith, morals, and religion. It is the faculty by which we seek to conform our conduct to higher ends. And this is part of the essence of man as a rational being, the animals have no conception of moral or religious duty. 
But in order for human beings to be capable of such ordering in the first place, we must have freedom. And freedom involves also the capacity for gratuitous acts. Um, I'm telescoping this argument a lot at this point, just to, to get you, give you the gist of it. At this point, though, writes Jones, we are immediately confronted with the nature of ours, uh, for art is the sole intransitive activity of man. It is a fitting together of things, performed not for any extraneous utilitarian purpose, but just for the rightness of this fitting together itself. Um, and the contrast with the works of the animals is, again, uh, a useful one. It is the intransitivity and gratuitousness in man's art that is the sign of man's uniqueness. Not merely that he makes things, nor yet that those things have beauty. For though the spider's web and the honeycomb are contrived by animate creatures, their beauty can be said to be of the same order as that achieved by inanimate nature, the hoarfrost on the pane or the leaf vein. In none of the animalic making is there any evidence of the gratuitous, nor is there any evidence of sign. This making is wholly functional. These activities are transitive. By contrast, says Jones, man must be considered a sign maker whose art is sign making. This also implies that man is unavoidably a sacramentalist, <coughs> and that his works are sacramental in character. Jones really does mean this inherent connection between sign and sacrament literally. For in any sign made by the creature called man from the very beginnings of prehistory, this creature juxtaposed marks on surfaces, not with merely utile, but with significant intent. That is to say, a re-presenting, a showing again under other forms, and an effective recalling of something was intended. Um, Anthony Domestico has a good uh, summary of, um, of, of, of this audacious analogy in Jones's thinking. Um, in the most daring move of art and sacrament, Jones explicitly links this post-impressionist, we might say modernist, understanding of representation to the Catholic theology of the Eucharist. The Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation states that the bread and wine of the Eucharist make real, that is to say, do not just point towards, but actually really make present the body and blood of Christ. In this specific way, the re-presentation of the Eucharist is similar to the re-presentation of the modernist artwork. Just as the post-impressionist painting of a tree is a showing forth of the tree in a different form, so Jones writes, it is said of the Eucharistic signs that they are a showing forth of something in an unbloody manner. Jones goes on, that particular instance from the domain of theological definition might, mutatis mutandis, be used to help us understand better something of the function in general of ars as a shower forth. The, the striking phrases used here, showing forth and shower forth, echo Maritain's claim that a radiance of form passes through the material elements of the work of art. In both the Eucharist and the artwork, the gap between signified and signifier collapses. The painting actualizes the tree in the form of paint, just as the Eucharist actualizes Christ's saving grace in the form of bread and wine. Uh, in the whole sequence of Christ's redemptive acts, from the institution of the Eucharist to his sacrifice on the cross, therefore, he makes use of specific signs and forms. Christ draws close to humanity precisely by inhabiting and consecrating the nature of man as artist. Something has to be made by us before it can become for us his sign who made us, as Jones put it in his preface to the Anathemata. Or in a phrase Jones often quoted from the theologian Maurice de la Taille, he, Christ, placed himself in the order of signs. Now for Jones, the problem with the whole trajectory of modernity is a kind of forgetting or active suppression of the nature of man as artist, ultimately instigated, as we've seen, by nominalism. Modernity for Jones is technocratic, obsessed with devices and machines, and finally the dominion of the human will over nature. But, Jones argues in the essay, the utile, when man's works seek utility only, they can appear to become utilitarian in the most derogatory sense. That is to say, they appear subhuman. This juxtaposition of a sense of desolation in face of the present wasteland-like state of modern civilization on the one hand, and the search for the redeemer of man as artist and sign maker on the other, is the dramatic core of Jones's poetry. One of the clearest examples is the poem A, 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 Domine Deus, where we find lines like these. I have journeyed among the dead forms causation projects from pillar to pylon. I have tired the eyes of the mind regarding the colors and lights. I have felt for his wounds in nozzles and containers. I have wondered for the automatic devices. I have watched the wheels go round in case I might see the living creatures like the appearance of lamps in case I might see the living God projected from the machine. 
In the long poem, the Anathemata, this core tension is worked out through 243 pages of incredibly dense, multi-layered, cumulative showing forth of significant signs held up or set aside as sacred or sacramental, which is what Anathemata means, where layer after layer of the history of Western Christianity and the history of Britain and Wales is evoked and intertwined by, by linguistic juxtaposition. The first scene is set at a mass, appropriately, and the speaker describes the priest as ministering in, in Pelham's land, alluding, of course, to uh, King Pelham, the lord of the wastelands in Mallory's Mortartor. Uh, the utile infiltration is everywhere, but the odd, out-of-place ancient ritual with its layered symbolism still proceeds. These rearguard details in their quaint attire, heedless of incongruity, unconscious that the flanks are turned and all connecting files withdrawn or liquidated, that dead symbols litter to the base of the cult stone, that the stem by the pulled stone is thirsty, that the stream is very low. The utile infiltration nowhere held creeps vestibule is already at the close lattices, is coming through each door. The cult man stands alone in Pelham's land. More precariously than he knows, he guards the sigma, the pontifex among his house treasures, the twin herbs his house is. He can fetch things new and old, the tokens, the matrices, the institutes, the ancilia, the fertile ashes, the palladic foreshadowings, the things come down from heaven together with the kept memorials, the things lifted up, and the venerated trinkets. The Catholic... Um, um, yeah, well, I, I, I won't try to kind of unravel all the historic associations of this in this passage, which is chiefly focusing on the Roman origins of the priest's vestments and some of the ritual objects used in the, uh, the old rite of, of the Latin mass. The point being made uh, is that the infiltrations cannot ultimately undo the nature of man as artist. And the mass continues to show forth the whole movement of Christ's consecration of man as sign maker and, and sacramentalist. As such, the mass, in a sense, carries the entirety of human history with it. Sacrament remains as unavoidable as it was from the beginnings of prehistory, from the time of the statue of the Venus of Willendorf or the Lascaux cave paintings dating from about 20 uh, or 25,000 BC. It's another quote. Then it is these abundant ubera here under the species of worked lime rock that gave suck to the Lord, she that they already venerate, what other could they? Her, we declare, who else? And see how they run the juxtaposed forms, brighting the vaults of Lascaux, how the linear is wedded to volume, how they do within in an unbloody manner under the forms of brown hematite and black manganese on the graved lime face what is done without, far on the windy tundra at the kill that the kindred may have life. And the Catholic doctrine of the mass is, of course, everywhere here in phrases like under the species of and in an unbloody manner, pointing to the, the way in which the entirety of human sign making, past, present and future, is absorbed into the unbloody sacrifice of the mass where all times are present. How could it be otherwise if man is the maker of signs? How else we or he himself, whose name is called he with us because he did not abhor the uterus? whereby these uberal forms are to us most dear and of all hills the most august. Jones often quoted Aquinas' opinion that the flesh is not an infirmity, but a unique benefit and splendor, a thing denied to angels and unconscious animals. Um, this is from, uh, from Martin Sacrament again. Here, the sacrifice on the hill of Calvary is strikingly joined with the uberal forms of the Venus of Willendorf uh, with Mary's uterus as connecting link. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, precisely because he does not abhor the flesh and the arts of rational animals whose sign-making is rooted in the flesh. Well, I want to conclude this lecture by giving nominalism one last proper send-off, uh, and happily Jones's poem itself does just that. Um, and uh, this uh, last quotation is from a section called The Lady of the Pool, whose main voice is a lavender seller in medieval or perhaps Tudor London, an archetypal female who has seen all that city's comings and goings by water over many centuries. And this then is a story about London as a culture built around and upon water, and that necessarily includes a tale of violent domination and expropriation as well. And nominalism turns out to be thoroughly implicated in this from the very start. And those as after them whose fathers shall relate to them of these old times before them, those as, by what new gear and a deal of dials, gins of propulsion and all manner of contractions, unguessed even of an admirable scab-shin nominalist, 
shall know the total compass of the thronging waters and assert regiment of the whale's entire domain. And of these such yet to come, a tidy many from the many hides of this river, Captain, by and large, some from this here very hall, Captain, Dona Es Requiem Sempiternum. And we need Jones's note here to make full sense of the scab shin nominalist, which is a derogatory epithet once applied to Franciscan friars. Um, see the description, he says, of Drake's voyage of 1577 to 80, published in 1628 as the world in compass, touching ordnance and great guns, the late invention of a, a scabeshin friar among us in Europe, with reference to Bacon, Roger Bacon, known as Dr. Mirabilis, whose 13th century researches make him a harbinger of methods and instruments without which 16th century techniques and our own subsequent sea power could not have been. In common opinion, if you were a Franciscan, you were a nominalist, and certainly Bacon's preoccupations link him with nominalism and with English empiricism. He appears to be nearer his namesake of 300 years later than to the saint from whom that namesake got his Christian name, though it's a long, long way from Assisi to Verulam, which is uh, Francis Bacon was Lord, Lord Verulam. Um, so what we have here then is a kind of projection forward of the gradual ascent of technical mastery in the world of navigation, shipbuilding and sea warfare to come as we move from medieval England to the age of Francis, Sir Francis Drake and, and, and beyond. So nominalism is being associated with a utilitarian will to encompass or dominate the world and its waters technically and experimentally from the 13th century Roger Bacon, who introduced the recipe for gunpowder to the West, to, uh, to those uh, uncompromising 16th century Francis's Drake and Bacon. Yet ultimately, this note of critique is not allowed to, to dominate. Even nominalists cannot help being sacramentalists and sign makers despite themselves. And a rich, complex culture will accrue around nominalist-inspired ideas and choices too. Human mistakes, theological mistakes, send us out on particular journeys, force us to construct, construct new harbours, however temporary. And our mistakes are never outside of the compass of the prayer, Dona Eis Requiem Sempiterna. Thank you. <laughs>